Welcome to A Little Bit Radical, a business podcast from Standing on Giants. I'm Rob, your host. Join me as I meet people and organisations who are doing things differently, challenging the status quo and yes, might just be a little bit radical. Reduce, repair, re-give. A simple mantra for a more sustainable future. These are the principles Play It Green lives by, and I'm speaking to Richard Dixon, the co-founder today. Play It Green helps businesses reduce their environmental footprint, repair the planet through planting trees, and re-gift funds to good causes through a 10% of revenue scheme. Richard himself has been in this space for a long time, most notably as one of the masterminds of carbon-free dining, a scheme used by the likes of James Martin and Gordon Ramsay to embed sustainability into the restaurant world. I'm looking forward to a down-to-earth, buzzword-busting chat about creating greener businesses here, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. It's really good to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Wonderful. So if you are a little bit radical, Richard, and you're on our podcast, so we know you are, what do you think in your early life set you up for that? I think having parents who wanted to teach me right from the very start to question everything and not just accept the status quo. I recently discovered I was neurodiverse and I think that strangely that had a lot to do with thinking differently. I'd always thought I was different and I thought everyone else was different as well and as you go through life you realise well no most people are quite similar and I think that neurodiversity helps as well. That's fascinating and I believe I'm right in saying that more and more people are in a similar position to you where they're getting a neurodiversity diagnosis later in life. When did you get it and tell us a bit more about how it helped everything sort of click into place for you a bit. When going back to early years I got moved schools when I was six my parents were told I was a disruptive influence and you think with typical neurodiversity it would be you know misbehaving and things but it wasn't it was actually I was asking too many questions and disrupting the class and the teaching flow. And asking questions a six-year-old shouldn't be asking. But the diagnosis came because my son, my eldest son, was struggling with loud noises, busy places, and other things. But he'd always been a really easy child. He conformed and very similar to me. That At school, I was a, a really good kid. Other than asking questions, I wanted to conform because I felt different but wanted to fit in. And it was the same for him. And as he's doing his A-levels and doing psychology, which strangely was what I studied at uni, for the same reasons as well, he wanted to know why we do what we do. Joe did the autism spectrum test and he scored really highly. So he's now under a psychologist. And he suggested I do the test and and I didn't actually scored higher than him. And so I'm on a journey of self-discovery now, which is incredible. And yes, I've a number of friends that have gone through late life diagnosis. I think the tools are better now. I mean, I studied psychology, but never once considered that I could be neurodiverse at all. I just thought everyone was different. Thank you very much for sharing that. And it's great that you and your son have, I suppose it's just helpful to have the information, isn't it? And then you know that there's support if you need it and there's also context and there's other people you can speak to it's the context that's really important i keep having aha moments and having memories of childhood or teenage years and thinking that's why and i'd never understood that before and putting these emotional responses that you would say were probably atypical that i never knew why now i understand and it makes you a lot more comfortable but it's also why i'm doing what I do now because I constantly asked why. I went to uni and studied psychology and philosophy, the two subjects to understand why we do what we do and 
what our position is in the world and what the world's here for. Why is it an important question, isn't it? It definitely is. And thank you for drawing that thread because it would seem that someone with your uh, career background in encouraging businesses to be more sustainable, lower their footprints, be innovative about the way they do that does come about from asking why a lot. Correct. My uh, philosophy thesis was on the root of evil, but it was actually, I did a little twist and it was on capitalism with no checks and balances. Because don't get me wrong, I, I believe in reward for hard work, but there has to be a balance because capitalism currently mirrors survival of the fittest and evolution. And that ends up with an apex predator that when you transpose that onto society, it means one person or one corporation owns and rules everything, which is a very dangerous place to be and a position where money and property shouldn't give you power over other people because everyone is born equal and dies equal. But uh, I was recently told by the head of thought leadership at Nielsen that conscious capitalism is actually now the playbook, which was quite cool having spent 30 years being told it's a fairy tale. That's great. I remember a conversation we had with Donald Moore and he was saying how he'd always, through his own words, through not being very bright and having to keep things simple, had always pursued what we would probably call conscious capitalism or triple bottom line capitalism. You know, he said, I don't think they teach that in the business schools. But as you say, I think actually now they are. Now they are what he was doing. 20 years ago, they're now teaching. Yeah, Donald's a great guy. We um, played green actually partnered with his company. The employee-owned model is unbelievable. I went to meet the team and every single member of the team was happy working where they worked and were enthusiastic and, you know, followed the rules because they'd come up with the rules and it was brilliant to see. Never been to a company where people took more pride in their work. It is definitely a model worth investigating for a lot of businesses that's great testimonial there absolutely they are brilliant and beth his daughter does their sustainability work and the work she does is incredible as well they've really taken conscious capitalism as you say to the nth degree it's really good to see plus have a massive impact on the local community supporting loads of local charities which again is something we encourage a great episode to revisit once you've finished listening to this one everyone if donald moore in uh, the, the start of season two i believe i think for someone who would be described as neurotypical like myself there are certain kind of stereotypes that we associate with people who aren't neurodiverse. So you scored highly on the autism spectrum disorder test, but you have, as far as I can see, a huge network of people who you have met, and you are clearly a kind of master networker relationship builder. And that's one of the stereotypes that I think people like me have been fed, that people who are higher on the autistic spectrum are not very good at socializing or building relationships but clearly that's not the case with you could you talk a little bit more about that yeah so as a child one of the reasons no one thought that you know thought i was neurotypical was because i was a really well-behaved kid but i was working really hard inside to fit in and there's a thing called masking where you hide what you actually feel and sort of mirror other people i think i'm very lucky that there are other things seeing patterns in things recognizing patterns and not just in interpersonal relationships but obviously societal and economic and historical and things but interpersonal i'd see patterns and i'd know what not to say and i'd know i want to say this but i can't because that would annoy someone and it's not the right thing to say now i have noticed and i understand when i'm in a car driving and you're at a higher state of alert and the brain's functioning high 
I find it very difficult to mask. So if someone cuts me up, I'll be quite vocal about it. And I don't mean it and I don't want to say it, but it comes out. But if I keep it in, I feel anxious and uncomfortable. And so, but yeah, I learn way coping mechanisms, ways of dealing with things. The problem I have is amazing anxiety going to meetings. I'm sure other people feel exactly the same. Uh, imposter syndrome, never feeling that you're good enough and wondering why people want to, you know, collaborate. But on the other side of it, what I've learned is to be myself and be passionate. And I love stories. Stories are so critical. I learned that through evolutionary psychology. I remember a, a tutor telling us that we're programmed to respond to stories. And it goes back to, he's an example, they'd go on the mammoth hunts and the warriors would then come back. And when there's a big feast and they're eating, they would go through the hunt. They'd tell the story of the hunt and the young aspiring warriors would almost live it and have the emotions of it and they'd learn from it and so i got really good at telling stories great thank you for sharing that it's very enlightening thank you and appreciate your candor as well that's really great also i think everyone listening would have a lot of sympathy for road rage i don't think that's something <laughs> that affects only neurodiverse people <laughs> no but I'm generally a really calm person but i have noticed patterns where when i'm in a heightened state and my brain's doing other stuff, the sort of subconscious masking that I've developed just disappears. Falls away. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yes. Yeah. As an adult, do you think you've become more radical or less radical? And what's been behind that? I would say probably since 40, I've become a lot more radical. And what was behind that? Well, family loss. We lost twin girls quite late stage pregnancy. Oh, gosh. Sorry to hear that. It was really sad and yeah, you never get over, but it changed me in a positive way because I started looking at ways to deal with the depression and the negativity that caused. And I discovered mixed martial arts at 40. I'll never forget the first sort of few months that I went, I'd be throwing up within 20, 30 minutes and I kept going and I kept going and I pushed myself and pushed myself. And then one day the throwing up stopped and I'll never say the enjoyment started because it wasn't really something that you enjoyed while you were doing it afterwards you did you'd look back and think wow but i went from thinking i could never do it and saying to the coach i can't do this to just having a hundred percent belief that anyone can do anything i was telling my kids this morning the first time i went sparring and we were doing hard contact sparring i punched the guy and apologized <laughs> of course <laughs> i think like... i would do that I, I, <laughs> I would definitely do that so I learned something completely outside my comfort zone. And what it taught me was that the further outside your comfort zone you go, the more you develop and the more uncomfortable you are. And then I started looking at seeing patterns in that. Even the story of, oh God, what's the steel called? There's a particular type of steel that's folded and folded and folded and folded. And it's much, much stronger, but it's been beaten more and more and more to make it stronger. And I think it's similar for people that when you make things harder, your body responds or you're, you know, and, and you cope. So I think that's where it changed. Thank you for, again, such candor and being so honest and sharing that. Thank you. And I think, I think there is something in that. I've been recently watching Live to 100 on Netflix, which is very top of mind for me. It's about the blue zones, the places that have the most 100-year-olds. And he's gone to Okinawa, the Japanese island. That community talk a lot about their experience under occupation in the Second World War and that hardship and how that has given them a resilience. Know how to live, I think, is the key. Know what makes life worth living. Really appreciate those things. 
and focus on what's important rather than pursuing things which aren't like lots of consumerism and, the, and that kind of thing. 100% agree. There's some great podcasts, I can't remember his first name, the Huberman podcast that teaches you what's good for you. And it's really simple, exercise, healthy diet, sleep. But all of these things actually help with mental health. They help with your productivity, your wellness, and all of those things combine, don't they, to for the better. Completely. And that's something that, because I'm 51 now, but I play football, I run 30k a week, I'm playing with 20-year-olds and keeping up. Wow. It's the recover. The recovery is harder, but this is all from being really diligent and creating, and again, this is part of neurodiversity, creating these patterns and routines in my life that help me cope with everything and function as well as I can. Well, I think my money would be on you to be joining that centenarian club, <laughs> Richard, if you're <laughs> you're now halfway there and still keeping up with 20-year-olds. Yes, so. That'd be amazing. Yes, I, it's funny. I coach kids football. In fact, I stopped this year. I took the decision because I've got other things to do and my kids are getting older. But I've coached since my 17-year-old was four and I'm now playing with him and his mates. So oh, they, they're playing our games, which is great. Well, a lot of my friends have dropped out now. I'll go as long as I can. Of course, I love it. So let's move on to your work now. Tell us about Play It Green, who you are and what your mission is and how you help businesses. Play It Green was... Like many, a COVID business had a dream to change the world and create behavior change, a consciousness shift. Behavior change is the critical thing now in the world. People need to become conscious consumers, businesses. Business owners need to become conscious capitalists. We need to start thinking about employment practices. We need to start thinking about our impact on the environment, our impact on the local community, all of these things. And I was told this by so many different experts. Now, I spent 20 years in retail training and developing and creating behavior change. And it starts with individuals and it starts with putting the dopamine production in the right place. That then makes them feel better about themselves because they have a sense of achievement. And that when a number of individuals within a community start pulling in the same direction, that community then changes, so the culture changes there. So what I wanted to do with Play It Green was do that on a huge scale, on a global scale. Originally through sports, it was pre-COVID that I came up with the idea for sports. Chris, our CEO and my co-founder, was running European Rugby League at the time, having run Welsh Rugby League and won the European Cup for the first time with them. And I approached him about climate positive match days and using sports clubs to, in the run-up to the game, trickle feed sustainability tips, using the players as influencers. Very simple, just a single tip, turn your tap off, turn your thermostat down, anything that people can engage with. The month before the game, we would have a sustainability challenge, go vegan for a week or whatever. But the idea is you engage people and you give prizes. A good example, if we'd have got the Liverpool City game three years ago, they had a 300 million viewership globally. We could have potentially asked them with their sponsors to plant 100 million trees, as well as doing everything else. And all of a sudden, you've created this bubble of incredible change that would be felt globally covid ended that <laughs> because stadiums were shut for two years we didn't know what was going to happen but actually play green exists as we do now because of chris cleaning his teeth he's cleaning his teeth one night he turned the tap off which he'd never done before now bear in mind chris is your typical person he does his recycling he switches the lights off shouts at the kids if they don't but he'd never turned the tap off or even thought about that. And suddenly he was flooded with guilt and he remembered the statistics I'd told him about showering and leaving taps on and things. And he said, that's the business, creating that awareness and that 
dopamine for doing the right thing. And that only comes with understanding, knowledge and awareness. So we went back to the drawing board. And again, just like with carbon-free dining, keeping things simple, sustainability isn't simple. I'm not going to say it is. However, neither is getting in the ring and having an MMA fight. It takes years. But when you break it down into the individual components, it actually is simple. So we came up with a three-step solution, which is reduce footprints through tips, education, signposting, basically making it easy for individuals and businesses to engage with sustainability. Step two is repair the planet, the plant trees. We use very minimal offset calculations to offset people's footprints. We use the minimum levels we can, much less than other people attribute to a tree. But really, we're doing that to get the trees planted because they're needed and they're creating employment. And then step three is the re-give. That's the conscious capitalist in me. We give 10% of turnover to charity. And we're a member-driven business. Our members choose the charity that their 10% goes to. We started with three charities when we launched. And we now have 35 on board with another three in the offing. And so that's really cool. And we get letters from the charity saying, this is amazing. Thank you. Of course. Um, and again, it's using business as a force for good. So three-step solution was written. We decided to create a subscription service basically for individuals originally at £5 per subscription. A business signed up a couple of weeks later and they called us saying, what have you done? And we're like, what? We thought this was a negative conversation. He goes, they all love it. All the staff, he had 10 staff. He said, they all got the free shampoo bar that you got in the get in the weekly tip and now they're asking me about net zero and green energy and what are we going to do with our sustainability he said help me so we built built everything absolutely that was literally the start from a shampoo bar correct yeah yeah so turn your tap off and here's a free shampoo bar to get going correct and then all of a sudden all the staff were engaged and it happened again and again and three or four businesses signed up and they all asked the same thing And by the fourth business, we had all the stuff to give them straight away. Here's your sustainability policy. Here's a net zero framework. Here's your web page. Here's your anti-slavery policy. All the stuff they needed. And then they started asking for green energy. So we contacted green energy businesses and we realized people needed signposting. And then one of the businesses said, could they speak to the other business? And we realized the community was there to be grown. So fast forward to now. We are B Corp. That was really important very early on to get that accreditation because it means something. We scored in the top, I think, 3% in the world for governance. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We're completely transparent as a business. We publish everything. Our subscription service has been taken up by, I think, 190 businesses currently in nine countries. Um, We range from PLCs and Great brands in Manchester, like Manchester Central, and obviously one and all, uh, Donald, we mentioned earlier, to single and small micro businesses. And the service is the same for all of them. We can signpost, we can provide the documentation, we engage and educate the staff, which is where everything starts. The feedback we have is that cultures change. And this was the whole idea when you educate people and you drip feed it and you keep it simple and you shift the consumerism to conscious consumerism people get that internal reward from doing the right thing and the same with business a business owner can be more proud of his profits or their profit sorry and um, people feel happier within the workforce outstanding one of my mentors has said to me that doing good is almost the most selfish thing you can do because of how good it makes you feel 
And is that kind of what you're trading on almost? Yeah, I'm not trading on it for the salary. The way we set the business up, we would never earn until we scaled massively. Chris and I, when the tree prices doubled and all the other companies that planted trees as part of their offering doubled their prices, we kept the prices the same and went back to zero with wages. But I do get up every morning thinking how amazing we've planted more trees, there's more money going to charity. We're empowering more and more people to make and businesses to make change. And we're starting to get people talk about us that we don't know, which is the amazing bit. Well, that's always a special moment, yeah. <laughs> when you haven't been knocking on the door <laughs> and yeah, it's opened anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about creating a scene on, on your website, you call it a climate positive workforce. Yes. What is that? And if I'm in one of these workforces, so I'm an employee at a company that signed up with you, talk us through that experience that I have as an employee once my business signs up with you. So every employee will get an email welcoming them to the workforce and they will have access to their own members portal. It's owned by the company and then it works on a parent and child. So the company has the parent members area and then every employee will get their own in that it has all of the content that we've produced since we launched broken down into business, individual and family, news, all the different content really accessible. It shows the impact that the company's made in terms of tree planting, CO2 rebalancing, charity giving, everything's shareable. You can run campaigns. So if an employee wants to run a campaign for their birthday to plant trees instead of getting presents, they can do that themselves. Every Friday, they get a weekly tip newsletter, which will have the Monday good news. We always produce three pieces of positive news content on a Monday because there's enough negative news content. We like to rebalance it. I read it this morning. You're right. It was a very positive read. It was, <laughs> it was good to lift the spirits, definitely. And, you know, even if it's a company that's polluting like Pepsi or someone like that, they are still starting to make the change. So we like to focus on it because... A, it's good exposure for them and it's going to encourage them to do more, but also their competitors see it. Tuesdays is new member articles. We do that for a specific reason that we found when we did. The members started to come to us and say, can you put us in touch with them? We want to use their services. So that's really cool. We're actually, the next development of the members portal will have a, we've not decided exactly how it worked, but like a messenger style chat place where members can communicate with each other to share best practice and start collaborating. That's the goal. Then Wednesdays we do business tip. So it may be something as simple as what's the difference between net zero and carbon neutral, or it may be something about culture change within the business and how to enable it. Fridays is the weekly tip, which is always focused on an individual tip that you can make within your home. And it could be anything from period products that we did a few weeks ago to sustainable headphones to, you know, anything. In fact, our sustainable headphones article is five on Google. If you Google sustainable headphones. Outstanding. Yeah. Because you've got all these headphone manufacturers selling sustainable headphones and our article with content about it's been up there with them. I'll be going to read that straight afterwards. Yeah. So if I'm a business, I come to you. You've got a lot of really good top-down stuff with like all the policies and you know the procedure. Here's what you should do if you care about this. And then all that great bottom-up stuff as well. So stuff that's just going into the employees' inboxes, into their homes, into their lives to help them along the, along the journey. What about kind of measurement? Because this is a big challenge in this space, right? Sort of measuring the impact once you start on this journey. Where are you with that? So we completely agree with science-based targets. It's not what we do. However, and this is part of the community side of things, we have a huge community of 
products and services that we signpost to. We were very lucky to get early on seed investments. We're going to try and avoid any more investment because we've seen what's happened to other impact businesses when they take on investment and they become beholden to the, the profits. And we kind of like not want to get into that position. So individual measurement, no. There are apps you can use, but we did a load of research early on and the uptake of those apps runs about 5%. We spoke to the NHS who were using one such app and another big business and the staff uptake was really low because you had to enter data all the time and it becomes onerous when this is not how you create change. Change has to be simple and that wasn't. When it comes to businesses, yes, measurement is going to be legislation for everyone soon. It's already legislation for certain sizes of businesses and if you want to stay in the supply chain of supermarkets and and other large organizations that tendering process now incorporates huge amounts of that so very early on we got investment the investment was from an ex-rugby colleague of chris's who had an energy business supplying green energy what we didn't know was that they did secr so that's the big corporate footprint reporting that goes into corporate accounts and they were also bringing out a tool for SMEs. They'd seen that this was going to be happening. And it was kind of like a match made in heaven because we were educating and signposting and trying to reduce footprints and they could do the science-based targets for businesses that we can then use year on year to measure and say, look, your staff, you've reduced their footprint through education, but also they're now coming up with solutions within the business because they've got a better knowledge and understanding and the culture shifting towards a more sustainable way. You've got your footprint as your baseline, and then in 12 months we can measure that. And we've also signposted to solar panels, EV charging stations, and other services in the last 12 months that have helped you reduce your business footprint. Nice and comprehensive. I think you're fantastic. And what would you say is really the biggest hurdle to becoming a sustainable business, a greener business? In my experience, the biggest hurdle has been just getting started. Businesses know they have to do it. They know that sooner or later it's going to become legislation. There's this fear of reputational risk because the negativity in the press and the sort of knock them down type of attitude, businesses fear it. However, what companies should be doing is being transparent and making mistakes along the way because people get that. It makes them more human, shall we say, more relatable. You know, if you make a mistake and learn from it and share that, your consumers will appreciate it, your employees will appreciate it, your stakeholders, your investors. You're allowed to make mistakes, but just taking that first step is always the hardest. I'll tell you how I liken it. I liken it to my mixed martial arts experience. At the age of 34, I had a friend that started mixed martial arts and said it was amazing, and it took me till 40 to go so it took me six years to take that first step into the gym and it's exactly the same fear of failure fear of what people think what is it going to be like the unknown and i just say to businesses embrace it get started make mistakes because we learn from them it sounds really like an area of perfection is the enemy of progress here correct right yeah i've seen spot on many people working in sustainability speak around this i wouldn't call myself particularly embedded in the sustainability community per se we're a b corp i'm in and around 
it a lot, but I think I tend to focus more on the people side. It does feel to me like there is a level of elitism in certain parts of the sustainability community. Would you say that's fair or am I reading it wrong just because I don't understand? No, I think you are probably right. And I think there is a bit of a bubble. I think being, shall we say, a demographic that is seen to be to blame for a lot of the problems Chris and I have faced an uphill struggle sometimes for acceptance within that community. But I've also noticed that whilst it professes diversity, it's probably a little bit elite, which is the opposite of what it wants to be. And one of the reasons we don't force measurements down businesses' throats and one of the reasons why we don't act in a, not a helicopter way where we come in and tell them and leave, but we don't do that. But force feeding its people, we don't do any of that because it's not the way you're going to create change. Change comes from being relatable, being accepting from relationships, from community, from individuals. Going in at a board level and educating the board isn't going to create culture change in a business, is it? No, absolutely not. I've tended throughout my career to work in new trendy areas. <laughs> this whole sort of B Corp thing and yeah. sustainability being a new trendy area. The trouble with new trendy areas is that there's a lot of old, boring businesses that need to become more sustainable, <laughs> right? And are not very interested yeah. in the new trendy thing. So it needs to be broken down and practical and pragmatic and all the rest of it. I think he's also speaking to the people in the language they understand. Like the communication is really, really important. So when you're educating, it should be broken down to the lowest common denominator. But when you're speaking to a CFO, their first question is going to be, what's in it for us? It's not going to be how many trees are we going to plant or how many hours of employment are we going to create? It's what's in it for us. Fortunately, uh, now I got asked that in my previous role and didn't have an answer. That was going back five, six years. Whereas now I'll go back to speaking with Nielsen and we're just doing some, there's new research just come out, employee surveys from Deloitte and Save Carbon save money and they've just done some huge research and it all points to one in five employees won't work for a company with no sustainability credentials fact so you've just lost 20 percent of the workforce in the uk 22 percent of the population exclusively support businesses that prioritize sustainability so the opportunities now for cfos is you're going to improve your brand you're going to increase your consumer base you're going to be more investable. All sorts of reasons. It's strange. I have a, a really close friend from school who is also neurodiverse, maths genius, became a CFO, and he never got it. And I recently had a WhatsApp from him saying, I'm sending an email to you. Just I work for this huge business and we need your services. So there you go. And he is your typical capitalist. And the beauty is this change isn't going away it's slowed down because of the cost of living crisis and what's happening in the ukraine but it's not going away no definitely not i agree with you there so we're moving to the last section of our conversation today richard i always like to lift our guests out of your day-to-day -day now you're obviously involved in creating systemic change for a very grand goal sustainable future greener businesses but what's a little bit radical change that you would like to see in the world that perhaps you don't influence on a daily basis that you'd like people to get behind three things <laughs> right which pretty much encompasses the whole of society 
my thinking is that we are using two and three hundred year old systems to run society that have hardly changed. So number one, politics. We vote politicians in on what they say. They don't follow through. They're not held accountable. And then we do the same four years later. And so we're really in a totalitarian state apart from once every four years on one day. That needs to change. We have the technology and the means and ways to have a much more equal process to run countries. And we don't even need countries. We're one people on one planet. That's one. Great. Um, no, financial no more systems. countries. I love that. <laughs> no more countries. Wouldn't that be <laughs> amazing? That? that would be. We just live yeah. on one planet. I yeah, mean, we yeah. need aliens to visit if they haven't already. If you watch <laughs> the Senate hearings in the US, but that's another thing. <laughs> yes. Financial systems and banking. We're using hundreds of years old systems. We don't live in that age anymore, but we're still using those systems. Why? And then finally, education. Almost the whole world uses industrial revolution developed education to create factory workers. It doesn't work. It's not educating in the way that the world needs to be educated. Those three things all need to change. Thank you for such a succinct and wide-ranging answer <laughs> on that one. I think you'll have lots of listeners signing up on all three of those. So we're at the end of our conversation now, and the last question is always the same. And it's if someone's listening and they've got an idea, perhaps for a business or for their personal life, or it could be anything, they're thinking about taking up MMA, a little bit of a radical change for their own lives, but they don't know where to get started. What advice would you give them? If you don't know where to get started, my first port of call is usually Google. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> But, Google it. I but, love that. But if you want to, if you're facing that hurdle of just not being sure, I would always say go for it. It's the old saying: it's better to have tried and failed than never tried. Coaching kids football, I always used to say, we win or learn, because the kids used to come off really upset when we lost a game. So what we did was we turned losing into a positive by actually we're going to grow as a team more when we lose because we learn how to put it right. That's always the way. It's actually, win or learn is a jiu-jitsu saying. If you win, you've fought someone that's not got the same skill set as you, so there's not a lot you can learn. But if you lose, you will then be told by the person that beat you, this is how I beat you. That's just the way. I love that, and I think it's such a great piece of advice in a world where we are often, as we've already talked about today, taught kind of perfect or nothing, or we feel like everything needs to be perfect. But in reality, everyone who's built something successful has failed an awful lot <laughs> we need to embrace that right absolutely absolutely fantastic richard it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today i'm sure everyone listening will be checking out play it green and i uh, hope to speak to you again soon thank you so much thank you for listening to this podcast if you enjoyed it please follow us on your podcast platform if you'd like to appear on a little bit radical or have an idea of someone we should speak to please email podcast at standingongiants.com or get in touch with me on LinkedIn. You can search Rob Fawkes or search Standing on Giants and you'll find me there. Thank you very much and speak to you next time. Mm -hmm.